This is The Rounds Table. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to The Rounds Table. It's Kieran Quinn, your rotating host, and I'm joined by Emily Hughes, who, as most of you know, is our head producer here at The Rounds Table and budding star in clinical epidemiology. Emily, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Kieran. Really excited to be back. So we've got an exciting lineup for you today, speaking of being excited. A couple of great articles that are hot off the press, and I'm going to leave it to Emily to introduce her article for this week. Awesome. So I'm covering the Project CLEAR trial, titled Decolonization to Reduce Post-Discharge Infection Risk Among MRSA Carriers. And this trial was published in the New England Journal of Medicine on Valentine's Day of this year. And the first author is S.S. Wang. Nothing says I love you like MRSA. All right, Emily, tell us, what is the bottom line for this study? Yeah, so in this multi-center randomized controlled trial of patients colonized with MRSA, post-discharge hygiene education was compared with education plus decolonization. And what the trial showed was that post-discharge MRSA decolonization with mupirosan and chlorhexidine led to a 30% lower risk of MRSA infection than education alone. Okay. And for those of you listeners who may or may not be familiar, MRSA is methicillin-resistant staph aureus. We're all colonized with staph aureus, but some of us have the unlucky fortune of being colonized with drug-resistant staph aureus, and that creates problems down the road. So tell me, Emily, maybe this is related. Why is the study important in the broader context of medical knowledge? So exactly like you said, MRSA is a big deal. So it's the most common cause of skin, soft tissue, and procedure-related infections. And the rates of MRSA infection are the highest within six months of hospital discharge, and they don't normalize until over a year after discharge. It's a common reason for readmission, and it's a burden on our patients and our healthcare system. So what you're saying is that people who are colonized with MRSA have reinfection of various sources from this MRSA? Yeah, exactly. I see that a lot in practice. I also see the fact that people who are colonized with MRSA and come back with some sort of infectious illness immediately are covered with the antibiotic to treat MRSA, that being vancomycin, which has a lot of you know significant adverse effects when used in long duration. So it's important to figure out whether we need to get rid of this MRSA because of the risk that it poses to our patients. Exactly. Okay, so tell me how they conducted this trial, an educational intervention versus two separate types of therapies. Sure. So study design, first of all, this was a multi-center, unblinded, randomized controlled trial, and patients were recruited during inpatient admissions at 17 hospitals and seven nursing homes in Southern California. Okay. And what did the patients look like who they were trying to include in this trial? So they were 18 years or older. They had a hospitalization within the previous 30 days, a positive testing for MRSA during that hospitalization, or within the 30 days before or afterwards. Importantly, they also had the ability to bathe or shower. The mean age of the patients included in the study was 56, and there was a pretty even spread between males and females in the study. 90% of patients reported bathing daily, and the MRSA source and enrollment for most of the patients was from the nose, when the second most common source was from a wound. All right. And so tell us what the intervention was. Yeah, so essentially patients in the education group received and reviewed an educational binder about MRSA. So how to spread, recommendations for hygiene, laundry, and household cleaning, that sort of a thing. And in the decolonization group, they received the same binder and also went decolonization for five days twice monthly for a period of six months after hospital discharge. And what this decolonization intervention entailed was the use of a chlorhexidine wash 
brush, as well as chlorhexidine mouthwash twice a day, and 2% nasal mupirosan twice daily. That's a quite a labor-intensive intervention. That's a lot of bathing in chlorhexidine. So important to talk about. I like the fact that they used almost like an active intervention as a control with the education. It wasn't just assign them to usual care, whatever that looks like in most trials. It's actually, let's try to see if we can do something to counterbalance the effects of a medication. Neat. Okay. So what was the primary outcome? What were they looking for its efficacy? Yeah, so moving on to sort of the primary outcome. So essentially, the primary outcome was MRSA infection, according to Center for Disease Control Criteria. Secondary outcomes of interest were infection from any cause, according to Disease Specifics, Center for Disease Control Criteria, and hospitalization due to infection. What do those criteria look like? Can you give us just a high-level overview? Yeah, so essentially patients had clinical signs of skin infection and a positive MRSA swab or isolation of MRSA and other body sites with clinical infection. All right, so how did they measure these outcomes, and when specifically did they want for the follow-up to carry on until? So participants were followed for 12 months after discharge, and they had in-person visits at home or in a research clinic at recruitment and at months 1, 3, 6, and 9. All participants were contacted monthly and requested to report any hospitalizations or clinic visits for infection. And then after the trial closure, medical records from reported visits were requested and reviewed in a blinded fashion by two physicians with expertise in infectious diseases. Okay, so drumroll please, let's take us to the main results. So main results, so important to note that these results were reported as a per-protocol analysis and not an intention-to-treat analysis. So in the per-protocol analysis, MRSA infection occurred in about 9% in the education group and in about 6% in the decolonization group. So that shows an approximately 30% reduction in infection rates. And infection from any cause, one of the secondary outcomes, occurred in 24% of the participants in the education group and in about 20% of those in the decolonization group. So the number needed to treat to prevent one infection was 30. And other side note is that adverse events associated with the decolonization process were uncommon and mild, included things like local irritation from the mirapirosan and the chlorhexidine. So in these results as they're reported, the treatment arm appears to be efficacious and safe, according to the results. But I'm a bit worried about this per-protocol analysis. Uh, take us through that, Emily. Yeah, so the main criticism is that this analysis is a per-protocol analysis that didn't report the intention to treat analysis. So why is this important? So the per-protocol analysis tells us what happened under optimal conditions, but it limits our ability to generalize it to real-world practice. And the concerning point here is that there's an imbalance in the number of people that withdrew in the education only arm versus the education plus intervention arm. And we don't know why that happened, but it could be related to the intervention itself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so we have to keep this in mind that the magnitude of the effect is probably actually less in real world conditions. Excellent. So I think that's a really great point to bring up. And you know, almost twice as many people withdrew from the intervention arm than from the education arm. And as you rightly pointed out, we don't know why that imbalance occurred. And if it was somehow related to an intolerability of the intervention, then that has implications for real-world practice. And we don't get that from the per-protocol analysis. Okay. So um, anything else you wanted to say, Emily? Yeah. I mean, something else that I was a bit curious about was the effect of the hygiene education intervention alone. So this is something that the trial was not designed to assess. But I'm just curious, all of these patients giving this education about preventing MRSA, what is the effect of that on the outcome? Yeah, yeah, you're right. We don't know from this trial, from the way it's designed, but 
Interesting. I can't imagine it has a huge effect, although I suppose, you know, good hygiene practices may prevent the spread of it, or maybe it minimizes your sort of pathogenic load, and maybe it truly does reduce your overall rates of infection. Uh, if you're an infectious disease doctor out there, or you know something about this, please send us a line. We'd love to know your insight on that. So, Emily, what do you think overall? Is there clearly a strength or a benefit or not so much in this trial? What do you think? You know, overall, I think this is a pretty well-conducted trial, but we did raise this point about the way that the analysis was done. So it's hard to say truly how actually generalizable this study is in real life. Yeah, or the magnitude of the effect may be smaller than we think. But I still think it shows efficacy overall, even under optimal conditions. And it's interesting to know. I, I think it's an important, although labor-intensive, intervention. Okay, what do you think, Emily? What, what do you want listeners to take away from the CLEAR trial? So I think that although this intervention may not be implementable for all patients due to the limitations we mentioned, I think, as you said, for a certain subgroup of patients in the right context, this intervention has demonstrated clear benefit. It's therefore a reasonable management plan when discharging patients colonized with MRSA to prevent future infection. Yeah. And what I really liked the most about this trial was its outcome. So it wasn't just a, did you swab negative for MRSA after we washed you for a while? It's actually, does it reduce your, an important clinical outcome about infections? And I think that we saw some magnitude of effect in there. So I'm going to take it away and push for some more decolonization in patients I see with MRSA who have recurrent infections. Sounds good to me. Okay, let's move on to the article that I chose for this week. Slightly different or maybe drastically different than what you're talking about, but I think it's interesting nevertheless. So this was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine at the very end of January 2019. The first author was Dr. Christopher Cox, and the title of the article is looking at a web-based decision aid for surrogate decision makers in people who are mechanically ventilated for a prolonged period of time. So it's trying to help people make decisions around what to do in situations where their loved one or the person they're looking after is ventilated for a long time. Okay, very interesting and very relevant. Can you summarize what's the bottom line? So this was a randomized control trial of 416 surrogate caregivers, 427 physicians, and their nurses who were involved in the care of 277 community-dwelling patients. And what it found was amongst these you know, various groups of people, a surrogate-facing decision aid did not improve clinician-surrogate agreement on estimates of one-year survival or in fact on any of several patient and surrogate outcomes for patients who are in the ICU receiving prolonged mechanical ventilation, which was defined as ventilation longer than 10 days. So I think the, the takeaway for the bottom line is that the promise of decision aids rests on the assumption that mitigating knowledge deficits is the linchpin, as they put it in the article, to improving decision quality. And apparently, not surprisingly, I would say there's more to the story than that. Yeah, absolutely. So why do you think that this is important in the broader context of our knowledge? So there is a fantastic accompanying editorial from Dr. Tannenbaum, and I actually literally can't say it any better than Dr. Tannenbaum did, so I'm just going to actually quote the editorial for this. So Dr. Tannenbaum says, Prevailing wisdom and professional society guidelines suggest that a process-oriented benchmark for which to strive is deliberative shared decision-making that promotes patient goals. However, we lack evidence on the utility or sufficiency of this process and how best to promote it. Perhaps as a result, we see many undesirable outcomes of critical care, potentially inappropriate care and unwanted debility for patients, stress and depression among surrogates, and high rates of burnout among clinicians. 
So that just captures everything for me. We, we, we love the idea of decision aids. We don't have a lot of good clinical evidence around their efficacy. And in the ICU, this high-stress environment, there's a lot of problems when you have decisions that go sideways, so to speak. And it affects a lot of different people involved in those patients' care. Yeah, absolutely. So how did they do this study? What was the design and where did it take place? All right, so here are the nuts and bolts. It's a multi-center randomized open-label trial that took place at 13 medical and surgical intensive care units at five different hospitals in the United States. They included patients who were adults receiving prolonged mechanical ventilation, defined as greater than 10 days, and their surrogate caregivers, as well as the ICU physicians and the ICU nurses. People were excluded if they could make their own decisions, because this was all about a surrogate clinical decision aid. If they didn't have a decision maker, then obviously they couldn't be in the trial. If there was a clear preference for comfort care, then obviously no decision really needed to be made. And if they'd been ventilated for more than three weeks, then things start to change at that point with decision making. So they use that time window of between 10 to 21 days. Okay. Can you tell me a little bit more about the actual intervention? What was this clinical decision making tool? Yeah, so this is not something as simple as a drug. So it's a complex intervention, and it's a web-based decision aid, and that provided personalized prognostic estimates. They explained treatment options, and they interactively clarified patient values to inform a family meeting between the physicians, nurses, and the surrogate caregivers. The control group, on the other hand, received information according to quote-unquote usual care. There it is again. That was followed by a family meeting to discuss overall goals of care. Now, on the basis of information about the patient's values that was provided by the surrogate caregivers, the authors had developed this algorithm that predicted the patient's preferred goal of treatment. And they categorized that into treatments that were focusing on maximizing comfort, treatments that were focused on a time-limited trial of restorative care, or treatments that were focused on maximizing survival. So that was kind of neat. Okay, that is kind of neat. Uh, and then what were the primary outcomes and how did they measure them? So they used this research scale called the Clinician Surrogate Concordance Scale, fancy thing, that's a measure of both the alignment of prognostic expectations and the quality of information exchanged among the decisional participants, that being sort of the clinicians and the surrogates. So the question was, what percent chance do you think that the patient or your loved one has of being alive one year from now if the current treatment plan is continued. And then they measure the absolute value of the difference between the surrogate's response and that of the treating ICU physician. So scores on this clinician-surrogate concordance scale can range from 0 to 100 percentage points, and a higher value indicates greater discordance between the two. Okay, and what did they find? So a little bit about the patients. Typical patient in this trial was a 53-year-old white male Half the time was married. Previously, it was actually quite a high-functioning individual. There's no limitation in that person's ability to have a, perform their activities of daily living. And they were living in the community, so not a nursing home. Their surrogates were typically their spouse, typically of Christian faith, 80%, um, with high school and above education. Sure. And, and how about the actual outcomes that they were measuring? So surrogates who completed the decision aid showed a better understanding of the clinician's predictions and had less decisional conflict. But although the prediction of preferred treatment stemmed from the surrogate's own assessment of the patient's values, these surrogates actually rejected it 47% of the time, and in such cases almost uniformly opted for a goal focused more on survival than comfort. In other words, they did not 
agree with that predicted algorithm of care based on the patient's preferences, and they didn't agree with the physician's recommendations. That's really interesting. The other two things I'll say that are of further interest to Emily is that surrogates maintained expectations for their loved one's survival that were dramatically more optimistic than those of clinicians or an evidence-based clinical prediction model. That's that algorithm they developed. And there was no effect on these decision aids on patient survival, on hospital length of stay, or duration of mechanical ventilation. So a really interesting findings about discordance between well-meaning clinicians and the surrogates who are looking after and making decisions on behalf of their loved ones. Yeah, absolutely. Is there anything else really interesting that caught your eye or observations you wanted to make? Yeah, back to full credit to Dr. Tannenbaum's editorial, and I think this is the key crux point, is that the clinicians didn't actually sit down and review the surrogates' responses about concordance and discordance with them. And had they done so, they might have been able to unpack those beliefs a little bit more and attend to their emotions and decisions so that they could sort of maybe modify those overly optimistic expectations for survival to help further guide ensuing preferences and decisions. Mm-hmm, absolutely. It makes me wonder if, you know, if a second tool was developed, kind of taking these sorts of things into consideration, what the outcomes would be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You never know. Perfect. So tell us, what's the main learning point for this study? Well, I think the main takeaway, at least from me as a clinician, is that surrogates over optimism about survival for their loved one, which you can understand, at least in the setting of a critically emotional situation. But the resultant discordance from that over optimism between them and their clinicians may actually stem more from beliefs of people than the knowledge that they have. So the concept that if we somehow educate people enough and they have enough knowledge, then they'll act in a quote-unquote rational way according to what we as clinicians think is rational, I think is not the right way to think about it. I think we need to understand where people's beliefs are coming from and address those which is not simply solved with a very accurate clinical prediction model or some more, uh, you know, knowledge about survival in that situation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. Well, thanks, Kieran. That was really interesting. Yeah. So let's move on to my favorite part of the show, Emily. And I got to say, I'm loving the fact that all of our new co-hosts who have come on to the show, it seems to be their favorite part of the show as well. It's the Good Stuff segment where we're talking about what we are reading about. Emily, what is catching your eye this week? Yeah, so I read this really interesting randomized control trial actually in the BMJ that was titled Impact of Scribes on Emergency Medicine Doctors' Productivity and Patient Throughput. Essentially, what they did is in Australia, they evaluated changes in productivity when scribes were used by emergency physicians to assess the effects on productivity measures in the emergency department. And what they found was that when scribes were used, productivity really improved, particularly during primary consults, and it actually decreased patients' length of stay in the emergency department. So I thought this was really interesting from sort of like a QI perspective. I recently just finished a rotation at St. Joe's here in Toronto where they use physician navigators in the emergency department as a way to improve patient flow. And I've seen real benefits from it, and I just thought it was really interesting. I wonder what the legal implications in various jurisdictions are about having somebody else take notes for you and then how, you know, you may find people spending more time reviewing the notes somebody else took than dictating their own notes. I don't know. It's interesting. 
Well, that's cool. I like that. I like that idea. Thanks for bringing that, Emily. I looked this week at a essay in Annals of Internal Medicine. That was, I guess, what I was reading this week that talked about care of complex individuals with multimorbidity. I don't think that this is a new concept for most people, but I just like the way that it was written and sort of the, some of the points it raised. So really the meat of it is that guidelines continue to exist largely in silos. They're sort of individual disease-focused guidelines on how to look after diabetes or how to look after heart failure or some other you know condition. And those guidelines drive a lot of the incentives around care performance and the way we measure how well people are looking after their patients. But it ignores the fact that multimorbidity is common among all adults. And as the author writes, it's the norm among older adults. And you really can't just boil down individual disease to do this X, Y, or Z because the multimorbidity really impacts how various drugs are given and diseases are managed. So the conclusions of this essay was that, you know, we care for people, not diseases. And I guess that's why I chose internal medicine, because we like to think about the sort of complex interaction between all these diseases. So check it out. It's quite a good read. Absolutely, I will. Thanks, Kieran. Well, Emily, always a pleasure to have you on the actual show instead of doing the critically fundamental stuff that you do in the background to keep the show alive. So thank you for both, and we hope to have you back soon. Thanks, Kieran. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. Read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at roundstable or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. The Rounds Table would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes personalities. Thank you to all of our hosts, to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia-Flores, communications director, Grace Zhao, segment director, Shaliza Halani, host director, Dan Marinescu, director of quality and evaluation, Wilson Kwong, and faculty mentor and founder of the Rounds Table, Amol Verma. Join us next week for an exciting discussion of the latest medical research to grace the airwaves. You never know what's in store until you tune in.